Well, it's a joy to be able to open up God's Word with you again today here at Richfield Bible Church. This is week three of our study of the Book of Romans, and today is the day where we really start working through this letter verse by verse, text by text. So during the first two weeks of our study, we looked at the story behind Romans as it relates to Paul and then the story behind Romans as it related to the Romans. Today, I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in one way, we might look at those verses and think that's just a simple greeting to a letter, but in another way, Paul sets the trajectory for all 16 chapters in those few verses. Unlike some of his other letters, this greeting tells us a lot more, about a lot more, than just Paul and his readers. The heart of the greeting is the main thing that the whole letter is about. The heart of this greeting is about the gospel. Did you see that? Verses 1, 2, 3, 4, even the rest of it. This is a greeting about the gospel. And so that's the one thing I want to focus on today, the gospel. Now, two weeks ago, we walked through that first verse, remember it? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. It's like we asked Paul, Paul, who are you? Paul says, this is who I am. I'm Jesus' slave, a man called by Jesus, set apart by Jesus, to tell the world the good news about Jesus. Now we come to verse 2. Look at what it says. You see that which, the beginning of verse 2? Read in the ESV. What's that referring to? Paul says at the end of verse 1, set apart for the gospel, the gospel which God promised beforehand. Paul tells us at the very beginning of Romans what Romans is all about. It's about this. The gospel that God promised long ago. Now, this is one of the main reasons I'm so excited to walk through Romans together. Because Romans will bring us back week after week to the gospel. This reminded me this week of our first aim as a church. The very first part of our vision statement, which kind of lays out what we're aiming for, says this, is that we long to be a church that is gospel saturated. A church where its members know, trust, love, 
live worthy of, and proclaim the gospel and where its meetings are filled with the gospel. Romans is designed to produce this kind of church. Now, now back in the text, we, we might think, okay, if Paul's going to tell us about the gospel from the very first couple of verses, we might think he's going to tell us what the gospel is today. And he does that a little bit, but it's not as much as you think. What he really does is he makes three big claims about the gospel. And I want to see them one by one. The first one's actually in the last phrase of the first verse. When he says he's been set apart for the gospel of God. Now, what do you think those last two words add? Do you ever say that? I, I told somebody the gospel of God. Like what what would that add to the phrase or to the to the phrase gospel? Now the answer I think is actually simple, but it's worth thinking about it. And Paul is claiming that the gospel that he preaches is God's gospel. It, it's a message of good news from God Himself to us. Or to put it another way, the gospel isn't from Paul first. He didn't think it up himself. Paul actually says pretty much the same thing in the very first letter that he wrote in the New Testament. Do you know which letter that is? It's it's the letter to the Galatians. And in the opening to that letter, he basically says the same thing with more words. When he says... In, in the book of Galatians, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. Because I didn't receive it from a human source. And I wasn't taught it by mere human beings, but it came by a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying here, in a shorter way, the same thing. The message he goes around the world preaching isn't something he or any mere human being invented. It's good news from God to you. And I'm I'm bringing this up for a couple of reasons. First, we better make sure we understand what the gospel really is. After all, we're not talking about some human interest story that if you get a few details... (laughs) wrong about it, like it doesn't, it doesn't matter. We're talking about a specific message from God himself to you and to other people. Second, we better make sure that we don't change the gospel to fit whatever is convenient at the time. It's not ours to change. The gospel we preach is God's gospel, not ours. The church doesn't get to, to reshape the gospel, however it wants. Now, the gospel is actually what needs to reshape the church, right? And then then I think, practically, sometimes we're fearful to share the gospel because I think we fear being rejected. We take that really personally. And I understand 
that fear, and I struggle with it as well. But, but knowing that the gospel is actually God's message and announcement, not mine, helps me. Because it reminds me, telling the gospel isn't about me. We're not telling people what we have thought up. We're not proclaiming ourselves as if we have some wisdom that they didn't have. We're delivering good news from someone else. Good news from God to other people when we share the gospel. Now look back at verse 2. And I want to pick up the second big idea about the gospel. It's not just a message from God. Look at what he says in verse 2. Paul says he's been set apart to the gospel. Which gospel? Verse 2, the gospel which God promised beforehand. Where? How? Who? Through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This is our second big idea. The gospel was promised in Israel's scriptures. Let me think about that. Paul is claiming that he's not preaching something new. And this is critical to get this. The gospel was promised beforehand. And those gospel promises can be found where? Written down hundreds of years before Paul ever lived. For example, I have, think about this. I have, I have many dear Muslim friends. I hope some of them watch this. And they typically are confused about this. They think the Jews have the Old Testament, Christians have the New Testament, and Muslims have the Quran. But that's not how we see the Bible. A Christian Bible does not start in Matthew. Now, the gospel that's written on the pages of the New Testament was written down beforehand and promised throughout the Old Testament. The good news preached in the New Testament is not against the Old Testament. It is the fulfillment of what God promised. That's what Paul's claiming in the second verse. And, I, and again, I want to stop and I want to think about that. Okay, what, what does that mean for us? Okay, first, if, if Paul claims in the second verse that what he preaches can be found throughout the pages of the Old Testament, what do you suppose Paul will do a lot of in the book of Romans? I bet you he's going to quote the Old Testament a bunch. If he says in the second verse that what I preach to everybody is written in the pages of the Old Testament. And he does that. In fact, Paul wrote how many letters? Got any guesses? He wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. He quotes the Old Testament more in Romans than all the other 12 letters combined. This is at least part of the reason that Martin Luther, a long time ago, said that, you have to listen to this, Romans is the best introduction to the Old Testament. Now, now that seems backwards if you ponder that. Okay? Isn't the Old Testament the best introduction to Romans? 
don't you think? And I think that's probably true, too. But what Martin Luther was suggesting was that if you want to learn how to read your Old Testament, read Romans first. It'll help you know what to look for. Okay, another thing. If, if Paul claims that the gospel that he preaches was promised in the Old Testament, my question for you is, could you show somebody that? What do you think? I ask you, what is, what is the gospel? Maybe you would have an answer for that. Maybe you're here trying to learn about that. But maybe you say, yeah, here's, here's what the gospel is. We read, we read a book together in community groups by that name. What, what is the gospel? Right? And so I hope for many of us we could say, well, this is what the gospel is. Okay. That message was promised in the Old Testament. Do you think you could show somebody that? Could you show someone from the Old Testament that God was promising back then what he ended up doing through Jesus? Maybe, maybe you think, no, <laughs> I could not do that. <clears throat> well, I want to encourage you that reading Romans will help you with this. But I also want to encourage you that we actually need to be reading the Old Testament ourselves. Our Bibles don't start in Matthew. But maybe we say, but I, I just don't understand the Old Testament when I read it. That's why I don't spend much time in it. Maybe that's you. And I sympathize with that. In fact, that is one of the main reasons uh, I've been recording for the last several months a video Bible study called The Story of Scripture, which is on our, our website. If you've never checked it out, I would encourage you to do so because it's aimed specifically at helping with this, helping us read the whole Bible and helping us see better that what God promised, God did in Jesus. Now, so far, we're just taking our time right, to think about what Paul's saying about the gospel. It's, it's good news to us from God, and it's good news that was promised written down a long time ago in the Old Testament. But now, here's the most important question today. What is the gospel actually about? Verse 3. You see it? Romans 1, verse 3. The gospel is concerning his son. That's what the gospel's about. The gospel is a message of good news from God about God's Son. Now, here's a question for you. When you think of Jesus being the Son of God, what comes to your mind? What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? What do you think? Can you imagine someone trying to talk to somebody else Say, Jesus is the Son of God. What do you think they'd be trying to get across? Like, maybe, maybe I could imagine my wife <clears throat> talking with a Jehovah's Witness at the door. She would try to tell this person, if she had a conversation, Jesus is the Son 
of God. What would she be trying to communicate by that? I think that many of us, probably the first thing we think of is that saying Jesus is the Son of God is pretty much saying the same thing as Jesus is God or Jesus is equal with God. And that is true, right? If you read the Gospel of John, for example, Jesus says that he keeps calling God his Father, calling himself God's Son. And and how did the Jewish leaders respond to this? What did they take away from that? You know what they want to do? They want to kill him for saying this. Why? Because not just was he breaking the Sabbath, this is in John 5, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Okay? But here's the thing. Are you ready for this? As true and as awesome as it is that Jesus, as the Son of God, is equal with God, that's probably not the main thing Paul's trying to get across in this text. When he says Jesus is the Son of God, or the Gospel's about the Son of God. Do you know how I know that? You have to look again at the text and think about it. Okay, so look at the text. The good news is about God's Son, right? But that good news about God's Son was promised beforehand. Where was it promised? In the Old Testament scriptures, we say. So here's my question. What do you find in the Old Testament about the Son of God? What do you think? Could, do, you, do you know any? Do you, would you be able to come up with anything? What do you know in the Old Testament about the Son of God. Because the good news about God's Son is in fulfillment of what was promised in the Old Testament. So what I want to know is what they said about the Son of God. And do you know what the prophets said about the Son of God? What the Old Testament says about the Son of God? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Could I show you a little bit this morning? I'm only going to be able to point us to three texts, but I want you to see each of them and it'll fill in the main things you need to know. So, first question, all right? Where's the first time God ever talks about anybody as his son? And again, it's not the book of Matthew. Any ideas? Genesis? No, actually, Exodus. Exodus, all right? Second book of the Bible. I want you to go back there. And I want you to see it. All right, we're just going to look at three texts from the Old Testament. It's Exodus, and it is in the fourth chapter. Okay. Who's Exodus about, largely? It was about God. It's about Moses, too. Moses, a great man of God, okay, is about to go to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he's about to tell Pharaoh what? You maybe have seen like movies or something. What does he say? He says, let my people go, right? And he's supposed to go tell Pharaoh, let your million or two slaves go free. And we think, he's not going to listen to that. But right before Moses goes to Pharaoh, God tells Moses very specifically what he's supposed to tell Pharaoh, apparently the very first time that they meet. And it's a lot harsher 
then let my people go. <laughs> All right, look with me at Exodus chapter 4. Look at verse 22. This is right before he goes. It says, you shall say to Pharaoh, Exodus 4.22, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I'm saying to you, let my son go so he can serve me. Or if you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. For one thing, it's like, wow. Go tell that to Pharaoh. Okay. But did you notice how God describes Israel? It's the first time in the Bible he describes anybody like this. Israel is my firstborn son. God has a unique relationship with Israel. They're going to represent him to the world. They'll rule for him over his land, and they'll be like him in every way. At least, that was the idea. If they would be an obedient son. But of course, if you read at all in the Old Testament, you find that Israel was far from being an obedient son. Now, moving ahead, when's the next time God talks about human beings as his son? What do you think? It's a long, long time before you see it, but you've got to see it because it's in what I think is the high point of the whole Old Testament. Turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel. Three Old Testament texts we're looking at. Go to 2 Samuel the seventh chapter. Okay, this is a long time after Exodus. By this point, Israel has come out of Egypt and they're crushing it in Canaan, in the promised land. A man named David is sitting on the throne, ruling over God's people in God's land. He's a man after God's own heart. And one day, David's sitting in his nice big house and he starts thinking to himself, I'm sitting in a nice big house. But God is over there living in a tent. And he thinks, I want to build God a better house. Do you know what God says in response to that? God says, you are not going to build me a house. I am going to build you a house. Even though he's sitting in a real nice big house. That's the gist of what's going on when you read this. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11. 7 11, look at the second half. It says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. What does he mean? When your, day, when your days, David, are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, like when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He will, build a he will build a house for my name, not you. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And 2 Samuel 7, 14. And I will be to him, David, a father. And he will be to me a son. Now there's a lot more that could be said about this, but did you hear that? God promises David... Through his prophet, there'll be somebody sitting on David's throne forever. But it's not just that. God promises that he will be to David's son as a father. And David's son will be the son of God.
out of all Israel, God will have a unique relationship with the son of David. The son of David will represent God to the world. He'll rule for God over God's land, and he'll reflect God in every way. At least that was the idea if the sons of David would actually be obedient sons. But of course, if you read on at all, you find out that most of them were far from being obedient sons of God. Now this brings us to our last text. And even if you weren't familiar with those last two, I am confident you are at least moderately familiar with this text because we read it a few minutes ago. Okay. Psalm 2. I read it. I don't even know if you noticed what it said about this. So you might need to go back there to Psalm 2. It's a psalm that speaks of a king from David's line whom God would one day raise up to rule, not just over Israel, but to rule the world. But the path to the throne wouldn't be an easy one. Do you remember that at the beginning of the psalm? The beginning of the psalm, what does it say? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. They dig in their heels against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's break off the chains and throw off the shackles. And what's God doing? He's sitting in heaven laughing. Why? Because he thinks it's funny? No, he does not think this is funny. He's laughing at the foolishness of the rebellion of people against him and against what he wants to do with his king. And so he speaks to the world in his anger, and he says in Psalm 2, I think like verse 6, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God's promised to set up a king, and nothing's going to stop his promises. And then here are the verses you need to listen to today. Most. Psalm 2, verse 7, are the words of the coming king. The coming king says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Do you see it? The king of kings who will rule the world will not just be the son of David. He will be the son of God. And then do you remember how the psalm ends? The writer of the psalm in the last verse tells everybody what they should do right now. He says, kiss the son. Submit to the son. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. We need to submit to the Son of God now, not later. Otherwise, we face the wrath of the king. But the psalm doesn't end with a threat. It ends with this good news. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. If we'll stop rebelling, submit to the Son, and flee to the Son for refuge, we'll be blessed will be forgiven our, our sins, and will be saved from the wrath to come. Now, perhaps you're thinking, I thought we were studying Romans. Okay, so, good point. Now, I want to go back to Romans. I want to finish our text, and hopefully you can see how that comes together in this text. Romans 1, in verse 1, 
The gospel is the gospel of God. This is a message of good news from God to you. Verse 2, the gospel is what God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Which scriptures? The ones like we looked at today. Verse 3, the gospel is specifically about God's son. Now notice what Paul says about that son. It's about his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Why? Because that's what was promised. The son of God would come or would be the son of David. God's gospel is about God's son who came from the line of David. But we could say, but weren't there lots of sons of David? Lots of kings who sat on David's throne over the years. Sure there were. But none of those sons was this son. There's only one of these. Only one final son. Only one ultimate son of God. But you say, how do you know that? Is there any way to know for sure? Look back at the text. Verse 3. The gospel is about God's son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Verse 4. And who was declared to be the son of God in power. How? According to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The good news is that what God promised, God did. God raised up a son from David's line to rescue us. And this son was a fully obedient son. He was better than David. Better than all the sons of David. In fact, he was the son that David and all the prophets were waiting for. How do we know? Is there any way to know for sure who he is? God told us when he raised his son from the dead. God's son came. He obeyed. He obeyed God always, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then because God wanted us all to know once and for all, he wanted us to know for sure that this was the son the whole Bible was pointing to. God raised him from the dead and exalted him to the place of highest honor. The gospel is the good news about this son. And then we say, Paul, but who is he? You haven't said his name. And that's how he ends verse 4. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. God promised to send to save us. He is the Christ. And he is Lord. He's the Lord of the world. And writing this to the Romans, there is no way the Romans would hear this and not think about the fundamental Roman confession that Caesar is Lord. And he says, the good news is not about Caesar. It's about Jesus Christ, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, we need to know this gospel, to study it, to meditate on it. We need to trust it, to love it, to live it, and to share it. And for all of us here today, we need to respond to this announcement of good news today. You know, everybody who hears the good news about God's Son responds to it. Everybody. Even doing nothing with it is always a response. But it's not the right one. What's the right response to the gospel? It's the response Paul called for everywhere he went. For obedient 
faith in the gospel. In other words, God isn't asking us just to think about Jesus and whether he'll be good for our life or whether we've got a little room to spare in our life for Jesus. Now, God is calling us today by his Holy Spirit to turn from all other gods, all other messages of good news and hope from the sins that will condemn us and ruin us. And God is telling us, submit now to my son while there's time, while it's still called today. And I'm encouraging you today, if you hear God's voice in these words calling to you, submit to the Son of God. Don't harden your hearts. Run to the Son for safety. God sent him for you. God laid your sins on his shoulders, on the shoulders of his son. And God raised him from the dead to show you and to tell you who he is. As the author of Hebrews says, how will we ever escape if we neglect or reject such a great salvation? But as the psalmist said, how blessed are all who take refuge in the Son. Let's pray. Father, would you take these words, these good words, these words of hope and forgiveness, of mercy in your Son, Jesus. Would you take these words and plant them deeply in our hearts and For those of us who say today, I believe this, would you strengthen our faith? Would you help us to to grasp the gospel better? Would you give us zeal to share it? For those who might be here who have not bowed their knees to Jesus as Lord, who have not embraced this message of forgiveness of sins through Jesus. I pray for them that today they would not harden their hearts, but that they would run to the Son for safety. Lord, thank you for the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.